We're going to move to the book of James today, and that's an unusual thing for me to say, to tell the truth. To say, let's go to James chapter 5, because I reflected over the number of years I've been in ministry. This is my, I've begun my 30th year uh, in pastoral ministry, and um, I've never preached a series from the book of James. I said, well, I've got to fix that. So, we're going to have a series on the book of James uh, here between now and Christmas. We're going to spend some time in this chapter. Um, I think it's time that I do that. And there's other reasons besides the fact that I've neglected bringing this up as one of our themes for a month. But also I've noticed as well a couple of things. James chapter 5 will be our focus. And there are several things in that chapter that are very challenging to understand. We're going to do our best to unfold these passages and, and understand them. I, I teach hermeneutics. That's a class on proper uh, interpretation of God's Word. And there are passages of Scripture that are a little bit tricky, but we're going to follow the rules and uh, see that we come up with something that uh, is accurate to God's truth. I, I love the challenge, and so this is a passage that challenges me personally uh, to work through it with you. But I'm also greatly interested in speaking on the issue of faith. And that's what we will be doing here. Uh, it's something we have in common in Christ Jesus, our faith. And you and I understand, I believe, we understand the doctrine of faith, and we understand what it means to be saved by faith, I think we do, but living by faith, the practice of faith, matter of fact, I'm going to call it living faith. What is that? Do we know it well? More than just the doctrine of things, but the application of things. And what we are to do with it. Uh, um, James is going to say things like this. Do not be mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. That's what J. Vernon McGee used to say, where the rubber meets the road. If you've ever listened to his broadcast. Um, that's, our, that's where we're going to be. And I would say that if I'm challenged in trying to figure out these passages, I think we're all going to be challenged in living them out. Because that's the nature of faith. And so we're going to examine living faith. That's our theme for the next two months. Examining living faith. And the goal of this is, is to be practical. Uh, I want us to be living what we know. Living what we know. Uh, and I think there's a lot in this study that's going to motivate us to do that very thing. Um, so I call this series the Examination of Living Faith. And my goal is the activation of living faith. The activation of it. Now, I want to share with you a lot of things here this morning. But I want to at least read to you James chapter 5. So you get an idea of what is pastor setting us up for here. What does he mean it's challenging? Wait till you hear some of these verses. James chapter 5. When we start right away, it, it might just jar you a little bit. 
Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which have been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You're saying, wait a minute, is this Old Testament or New Testament? Doesn't this sound really odd? You say, that's not typical, that's not epistle, is it? Keep going. Verse number 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth in a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Recount those blessed who endured. You have heard the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then you must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruits. My brethren, if any among us you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Woo! You get it? Wow, what a chapter! Say, James, what are you doing? We're going to have a good time, aren't we? This is going to be a good study. Let's ask the Lord's help to start, to start with. Heavenly Father, there are passages of your word that are very challenging for us to just unpack them and understand what's in our hands here. And yet, Lord, we're thankful that you gave it to us. As your children, as your servants, as your students, we sit here before you and say, Lord, help us. Provide for us 
give to us understanding, give to us the capabilities to to not only perceive what's on these pages, but then to find the application and live it. This is a challenge. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is not boring. It certainly does give us a lot to think about. And, and we just pray that what we find here, what you have set before us, we will also do to your honor and your glory and in the way that we ought to live out our faith. Help us with this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now that you know what we're going to do, um, I want to prepare you today with a focus on the whole of it. All right? We've got to step back just a little bit to set before we can set our eyes just on chapter 5. We have to take a bigger view and so get a, a concept of where it fits into the nature of a whole book. I just read to you a chapter out of five. And this isn't just standing all by itself, isolated from anything else. It's, it's part of a whole. And uh, as we go into the challenges of this passage, uh, I, I pray that we're enjoying it a lot. <laughs> I, maybe if you like it, we'll do chapter four next. And I'll do something very unusual and work my way backwards through a book instead of forwards. But uh, I don't know what I'm going to do after Christmas season. But uh, there's a little variety. We'll start at the end of the book. Now, here's some tidbits for you just to start with. The author says it's James. If you go back to chapter 1, verse number 1, he identifies himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not much of a biography to work with. You read that and you say, James, well, I, I've heard the name James before. You've heard the name James before. Uh, there are some options in Scripture as to who James might be. Well, we know that John had a brother named James. They were fishermen, right? They later became disciples and they followed Jesus. We, we know that they were in that inner circle James and John and Peter, they were there together in very uh, interesting places with the Lord uh, during the time of his ministry. And we say, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a James that we know pretty well. We, we know about him. There was, he was called the Sons of Thunder. Uh, one, well, his brother was too. They were the Sons of Thunder. And it makes you think that these guys were pretty powerful in their speech. They, they wanted to call down lightning, apparently, and strike a whole neighborhood once and things like that. They're, they're pretty quick about judgment things and such like that. And you might say, wow, if chapter 5 is anything like him, that would be it, wouldn't it? Um, but actually, here's our problem. James died before this book was written. That James, in Acts chapter 12, we read about it. In Acts 12, verse number 1, it talks about the time when Herod the king, uh, and that's another Herod, that's not the same in the days of Christ, but later another Herod, uh, laid hands on some of the people of the church who belonged to the church, and he mistreated them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That was sometime around A.D. 44. Maybe uh, uh, five, six, years or so before this book was even written. Right? So we say, okay, that James, he's, he's put to the sword. It can't be that James. So is there other James he can work with? Well, the Bible does give us another James, and his name is all the way through the book of Acts. This James, 
Um, matter of fact, in the same chapter, chapter 12 of Acts, after James, the brother of John, is put to death, it says that uh, after the death of James, the brother of John, in verse 17, Peter was thrown into prison, and having been miraculously released, he asked that the news be sent to James. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I thought James was dead. No, this is another James. James was with the brethren. James was what we understand later from all the evidence, the leader among the church in Jerusalem. He was the mouthpiece of the church. Whenever decisions were made, James spoke up and said it. Whenever some decision had to be done, James is the one that's in the middle of the decision. We, we find his name often in the New Testament, and a significant part of it, especially in Acts chapter 15. There we have what we call the Jerusalem Council. It's really a great story, and it's a great history, and I can't go into all of it this morning. But it's all the bigwigs are there. Peter's there, John's there, Paul's there. I mean, they had to all come together and talk through a very unusual thing going on in the church. James was leading up the conference. James was the one that was calling for the decision. And we're going to read of James later. But what's interesting about James, when Paul identifies him, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, three, late, three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I did not see any of the other apostles except James. That's the head of the group. And this is what he adds, our Lord's brother. Jesus did have brothers. Mary and Joseph did have children. One of them was named James. James later came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he gave his life to serving in that church. And he was the leader among them. He was the half-brother of our Lord, James. He's the head that we're reading about here when we read in Scripture, uh, when Paul would report later of his ministry work in Acts chapter 21. He reported his work to James and to the rest of the elders. James' name just kept popping up all over the place. Galatians 2. It talks about the right hand of fellowship came from James and Peter and John. So we see James very active in the scriptures. All that to say, all the references that we have of this individual, James, he stood in a place of authority. He was in a place of authority in the church in Jerusalem. He, he was uh, presiding over the assemblies. He seemed to have had the final word in most passages, what he said and the conclusions that came from that. Uh, Paul and Peter both deferred to him when they had something they had to report. And Paul mentions his name. Every time he mentions him, he puts him before Peter or before John or some of the others. We say, okay, that's pretty interesting. Why do you tell us all that? Because there's a letter that's written that's got his name. It's written by James. It's the book of James. But it's written from a place of authority. I find that interesting. Because it's well documented in history. We could talk about Martin Luther for a minute. He thought this book never belonged in the Bible. 
He says, book of James, no. It's contradictory to the book of Romans. That was his opinion. He says, it ought to be thrown out. I thought that was an interesting perspective from him. But that was due to Martin Luther's passion. He had a passion against the doctrines that were putting works into faith. That was his day. That's what he stood for. He thought that maybe James was about to do that very thing. So his hermeneutic was a little bit off the course of what I would consider consistent. Because hermeneutics, as we study it, is an art and it's a science, if you will. There's beauty in the process as we look at it. But it's also something you could scientifically line up and say, this is how it's to be done. This is where we start. This is the procedure we follow step by step by step to understand what God is saying in this text. We have to be consistent. We have to take things literally. That's a challenge for some people. But above all things, I start with three prepositions, or presuppositions. That's not prepositions. You don't start with a preposition. You start with three presuppositions. This is always true when I think. Number one, this is God's word. That's always number one for me. This is God's word. This is not created by man. This is God's word. And number two, it is true. Because it is God's word. It's never false. It never presents anything inaccurately. It is true. And I hold to that with all my heart. And so if it is God's word and it is true, my third presupposition always goes into play here. It will never contradict itself. God never contradicts himself. God's word will not contradict itself because he's the author of it. And so that is very, very important for me. When I study any passage, understanding that point, especially point number three, it can't contradict itself. There are passages I don't understand. I have to confess that. I look at it and I say, I I don't get this. I I don't understand what it's trying to say. I, I don't know how to use this. But this one thing I know. It cannot teach something contrary to what I do know. Alright? If I have a verse that lays it out plain, as clear as can be, the sky is blue. Let's just say wildly that's something I say. I read that, I say, yes, that's true, absolutely true, every time it's true. And then I come to another passage that says, and the sky was yellow. And I say, now wait a minute, I thought it was blue. Does that mean it's contradicting itself? I always defer back to the one I know. The sky is blue. And then I say, I don't know why he said yellow. There must be a reason for that. But the error is not in Scripture. It's in my own head. I don't understand it yet. But somehow, it doesn't contradict with the other passage. Now that may sound strange for an illustration. But the point is, there are a lot of passages in Scripture, and people fall prey to this, They will say, in one passage, I know this is absolutely true. And then later on they'll read another passage and they'll teach something absolutely contrary to the first passage. Why do they do that? Because they're not consistent all the way through it and they don't hold to a simple principle that God's Word never contradicts itself. So we go with what we know. And we know a lot about faith, I think, by now, don't we? We've been at this for a little while, haven't we? 
We've been studying faith. We've been understanding faith. We've been talking about faith. And here's the fact. I know that James will not contradict Romans. I know that's true. But that may not mean I understand it. Not all the way through. Or how it works, or how to unravel, or, or what the reality is of what James is talking about. I can simply stop and say sometimes, I just don't know. But I'm not going to say God's word contradicts itself. Because it can't. It's always true. I'm laying a principle before you on purpose. It's very necessary that we know this. Because when we go into these passages, we're going to say, what does that mean? And we're going to be puzzled with it. And we're not going to fly with anything. And say, well, let's swing this way today. And let's swing that way tomorrow. Let's be consistent in our approach. That's what I'm pleading with. And that's what I hope to present to you as we go through this. Because context is very important. Everything sits within its own context. It has a context. This book has a context. The history of it is its context. The author is part of the context. The message is part of the context. It all goes together. And my goal is to keep it together that way as I present it to you. Alright? That's going to be my challenge. Alright? I confess it's my challenge. But here, true to the hermeneutical and historical context of what we're about to see, let's consider those to whom James wrote. Put him back in his church, back in the years 49 maybe, A.D., time of the Jerusalem Council. Now I can give you a little more details about what was going on there. James is the head of a church that's about 14 years old. Maybe 16 years old. Maybe 18 or 19 years old. It's still young, isn't it? He's head of a church that began in A.D. 33. He's the voice of that church. We see that he's the voice of it in A.D. 44. He's the voice of it in A.D. 49. He's the voice of it into the 50s when Paul's reporting back on ministries. He wrote this book, I believe, about the year A.D. 48 or 49. It was right at the time of that council. Let me tell you what it was like. Peter had been leading ministry happily doing what the Lord would have him do, and got called to a very unusual situation. He was called to go to a Gentile's home. And there at the Gentile's home, the Lord led him to talk to this man about his faith in Christ. This man believed the gospel. Shocked Peter. You know why? The Jews didn't believe the Gentiles could be saved. It just blew him away to hear of that. A Gentile came to know the Lord. That can't be. They just were overwhelmed with the concept. They thought it was something that only the Jews would ever know. And here Peter, one of the leaders, this strange thing happened. A Gentile was saved. So he got kind of excited about that. Thought about it a lot. Said, well, if, if, if God could save a Gentile, you know, he could save anybody. <laughs> I think that's good theology. Right? But it was interesting that he thought that. And he thought, okay, what do I do now? Let's go report this to the church. Because as the Gentiles started to come into the church as believers, the old Jews standing back there said, hey, it's not fair that they go any other route than our route. And our route is simple. We've done it for centuries this way. To be a good Jew, 
You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. You have to do others. And the rest of them are saying, but we're not talking about being Jews. We're talking about being Christians. And they said, but aren't they the same? And they said, no! These are Gentiles. They're not Jews. Should we make a Jew a Gentile in order to make him a Christian? They said, let's take this to a council. So they got together to decide, where are the Gentiles in this whole picture? Do we make them Jews first so they can be saved? Or can God save a Gentile without making him a Jew? Isn't that a great question? Thankfully, thankfully, they decided the right way. <laughs> they said, well, God can save a Gentile without making him a Jew. That's an amazing thing, I know. It's kind of stunning to us, too, just to say, really? That was the whole thing? That was the whole thing. And they suddenly realized Gentiles are going to be saved. So they prepared the church for it, and they trained them as what to say and what to do. But that stretched their faith more than you could ever know. That was an amazing thing that the Gentiles were being saved. They wanted to acknowledge it, and then they wanted to send a message out to all the Gentiles out there that, hey, it's okay to be a Gentile, only don't act like one. Act like a Christian. All right, so they sent a note out to them to tell them they didn't have to be circumcised and follow the law and all those kind of things, but they had to act like Christians. And so he sent the message out. Paul went out with it, Barnabas out, went out with it, Peter and the others went out with it. But that was important. That was their conference. It's not required that a man practice the law, practice circumcision in order to be a believer. This is his actual words. One of them was saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And another one says, We believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like us, just like you. That's the way a man is saved. Through the grace of Jesus Christ alone. That's important. That's important for us today too, isn't it? When we come to Christ... How do we come to Him? By faith. Because of His grace. Because of His mercy. Because of His life that He gave for us. We can receive Christ as Savior and have eternal life. True? Absolutely true. You don't have to become a Jew to become saved. You don't have to become a Gentile to become saved. You don't have to become Peter or Paul to be saved. You believe in Jesus Christ and you're saved. That was a message. We're saved through grace, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think James, the head of the church, is going to contradict that? He's writing a book right now on that topic in that setting. Why would he say anything otherwise? That was the main message. So James pulls out his pen. He says, I've got to write this down. I've got to get this out. I need people to understand what we're talking about, with a, what, what faith is. So he asked hard questions. I'm going to show them to you. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Go with me to verse 14. These are the hard questions he asked. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Whoa, wait a minute, James. What are you doing to us? Huh? Are you saying that you have to have works to be saved? No. That's not what he said. 
He asks a question. He wants you to think. Can you have a faith that has no works? That's his question. Can you have a faith that has no works? Here's another one, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's by itself. But someone may well say in verse 18, Oh, you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. So do the demons. They shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Boy, he's kind of nice. That faith without works is useless. Think about those. Think about those words. What is he trying to say? Is that hard, just the questions? He's not asking what saves a man as much as what is the evidence that that man is saved. Here's the point. If salvation was here in the middle... I don't work to get saved. I can't do that. It's impossible. My works are like filthy rags, we're told in Scripture. We're not saved by works. Ephesians 2 points that out pretty clear, doesn't it? It's not by works. Not by works that we're saved. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we can ever be saved. That's it. But on this side of my salvation, how do you guys know that I'm saved? What's the evidence? I wear a badge? It says saved? Or do I prove it by what I do? Is that inconsistent with Scripture? It's exactly what Jesus taught. You will know a tree by its fruit. All the way through Scripture we see the same thing. Here's the evidence that this man is right with God. Here's the evidence that this man is righteous. Here's the evidence that this man is blameless. And in the New Testament, here's the evidence this man is saved. James is standing on this side of it, folks. Pointing back. Paul in Romans was on this side of it, pointing that way. See the difference? He's saying, this is the faith that saves you. James is saying, this is the evidence that you've been saved. That's the difference. And as he's going through this passage, he says, So, you show me, show me anywhere, a man who stands on this side and says, He's been saved, and he has no evidence of it whatsoever. Now prove to me he's a Christian. What do you have to go by? Nothing. It's dead. (laughs) He can claim all he wants, but it's meaningless. Because you must not have it. There's an old phrase that goes something like this. If it looks like a duck, and if it walks like a duck, and if it quacks like a duck, then it must be a duck. (laughs) I think that might be our, our motto for this book. James is writing at a crucial time, folks. A crucial time. There were those in the church that joined it like you would join a country club. They were there as religious whatnots. They had their little 
badges of righteousness. They were Jews. They followed the law. They da da da. They they have their resumes full. They're standing in front of people trying to influence new Christians. And they came at it from the law, the accomplishments of the law. And if Paul is standing there and says, well, that law didn't save you. Certainly doesn't do you much good now, does it? With your pride and your pomp and all that. James is addressing these people because they're sitting there in his pew. He says, you're standing there. You're you're standing in opposition to the doctrines of the truth. Because you put yourself first in everything. Now, would that surprise you? That there would be people in James' day that put themselves first in everything? What did his half-brother have to deal with? Pharisees, who put themselves first in everything. People who lived by the law prepared and presented themselves as great people because of the law and the badges and the medals and the certificates and all that they wore. And they're not gone yet, folks. This is only 12 years later or so. And James says, well, they're still here. And now they're sitting in our pews and they're acting like they're religious among us. And I've got to deal with this because they're affecting the believers that are coming in. They wanted to be first in the pews. They wanted first in the supper. They wanted first in everything. They wanted admired. They wanted recognized. James is addressing Pharisees. He's addressing hypocrites in the church. Oh, I guess we're way past that now, aren't we? We don't have hypocrites anymore, do we? People who claim to have faith and don't have the evidence for it. False friends. Fake, as can be, sitting in our pews? Not possible, is it? That's what James is addressing. Matter of fact, many times as you read through this book, you're going to say, James, I've read that before somewhere. Yes, you did. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing how many passages he pulls up from the Sermon on the Mount that he's going to speak of in this book. I think it's fascinating, because that's when Jesus addressed those who lived in opposition to truth. So what is living faith? It's not a badge. It's a behavior. It's evidence that you are truly belonging to him. This is going to stretch us, folks. It's going to stretch us as we go through this today. Because as we examine living faith, we have to consider there were Pharisees in that day and there's Pharisees in this day. The hypocrite kind that uh, parade around as if they have everything they need and they live nowhere near to what Scripture calls us to do. Nothing. It's possible for people to live today who practice a form of religion and do not know its source. It's possible there can be some among us who are hypocrites in their faith, who claim allegiance to the doctrines of the Word, but do not practice them in everyday life. It's possible. And unfortunately, when we look in the mirror, as James is going to tell us to do, we just might find the culprit staring right back at us. This letter guards against hypocritical living. That's what the letter's for. It's to guard us against those things that are contrary to the true living faith of a believer. 
Let me give you the big picture. In the first chapter, 1 through 18, he examines, he examines living faith. The first 18 verses. And then starting in chapter 1, verse 19 to the end of the chapter, verse 27, he shows the evidence of living faith. And then in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, that's his application section. He gives you the effects of living faith. I'm going to give you some of the highlights here, just for a minute. In chapter 2, the first 13 verses, how it reacts to partiality. Oh, we've got that problem in our world. Faith reacts to partiality. In chapter 2, 14 through 26, how it produces works in keeping with its nature. It produces works. In chapter 3, it produces self-control, the verse, first 18 verses. Faith produces self-control. Chapter 4, it reacts to selfishness. Chapter 4, 1 through 12. And then in verse 13 through 17, it reacts to self-sufficiency. I bet that's a tough one to go through. And in chapter 5, the first 11 verses, this is where we're going to start, it's reaction to self-indulgence. Mm. What an interesting topic. That's the first 11 verses. The rest of the book, it's, it produces reliance on God. So James is telling you, in a sense, that true living faith will react to partiality, it will react to selfishness, it will react to self-sufficiency, it will react to self-indulgence. It will react to those, because it does not like those. And true living faith will produce works, will produce self-control, and will produce reliance on God. That's his book. We're going to deal with just those last two. The reaction to self-indulgences. That's really uncomfortable, folks. And our reliance on God. That's what we're going to see in these chapters. And I have a simple theory. When you read something, and you start to say, you know, there's something not right here. It's not God's Word. The Holy Spirit has a way of talking to us, doesn't he? Makes us think, something's not right here. My little theory is this. Is that when you open the refrigerator door and something doesn't smell right, you've got a problem in there. And if opening God's Word, something doesn't smell right, guess what? It's time to go looking for something that rotted. Very likely it's right on the inside. That's the first thing he deals with, things that rot. Isn't that interesting? We're going to work our way through this book. I know my time is pretty much up, but I've already walked you through some of these things that James is saying. But this is one little quote I want to read to you. James is not depreciating faith. Faith is a grand principle, and no man can be a Christian without it. It is assumed that faith can be rightly expected to have work. It is a fatal defect in the faith that James is condemning because life is dynamic and productive and faith that lives will surely produce the fruit of good works. 
I underscore the word good in all that. It's the evidence that the tree is good. The fruit is good. The point is simple. If you have faith, you will live it out. That's where we all should stand. If I have faith, I'll live it out. If I don't have the evidence of faith, there's no reason to believe that I had it in the first place. That's kind of hard to say, I know. Perhaps the most difficult difficult part of all of this, because we can only see a person's actions, can't we? We can't see their heart. I'm not laying this principle on you to judge you. I'm laying this principle on me to judge my heart. And that's all we can do with this, is measure ourselves accordingly. The difficulty comes with some people in church who might be immature in their faith. That's a hard thing to measure. (laughs) Some who live disobediently in sin, and that's a hard thing to measure. Those who act selfishly, that's a hard thing to measure. Whether or not their works are evidence that they are people of faith. Those are hard things. But I certainly don't want anyone to assume by my actions, or my attitudes, that I'm not a believer. I don't want that assumption given to me. So I will let my faith be tested here. I'll put it through the examination. And I'll see if it's what might be called a living faith. Okay, that's where we're starting next week. Are you ready for it? Why don't you spend a little time in James 5 this week? Figure out what it says. Call me up and tell me what you know. Uh, You don't have to do that, but I'm going to be searching too. Um, But uh, this is a great passage, and we should give ourselves to it. It challenges us, and it will. Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful. It's exciting to read. It gets right to the point. Boy, it pierces hard sometimes. And we've got a chapter in front of us that's going to be rather intense. It will expose the kind of faith we truly have. Lord, I pray that as those who truly love you, when we see what we see in the mirror, we, we simply hope, Lord, that it's pleasing to you. And if there be things among us within our lives that needs to be changed, thank you that you're kind enough to show it to us. And you give us the power to see it through. And that's your goal ultimately is for us to be like Christ and that will happen the process may not be comfortable but the end result is wonderful and we look forward to it so as we walk together through a passage like this may your grace abound to us may our love for you grow all the more may we view it in the right sight that we might bring glory to you in great great application to ourselves we pray in Jesus name Amen.